Well, it's a blessing to be here with everyone as we are diving into God's Word. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 26. So we turn to that as I get my notes here ready. It's kind of uh, jumbled here for some reason. Um, and we'll be ready to read through it. Matthew 26 is going to be from verses 17 through 29. Verse 17 through 29. And it says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go in the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Disciples did as Jesus directed them, and they prepared the Passover. It was evening, he reclined the table with the twelve, and they were eating. He said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing, it broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the forgiveness of many. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it with you new in my Father's kingdom. Jesus' amazing words as he prepared for his own sacrifice by instituting the Lord's table. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful for this Sunday morning. We're thankful that we as a church can gather and, and study your word together to, to come in communing with you and communing with each other as we're being filled and led by the Holy Spirit to know your word and have your word change our lives. We're so thankful, God, for this privilege. So many people in this world don't have this privilege in which they can worship you freely and have a Bible in their hands. And we do, Lord. Lord, we're thankful that we get to have that, and we pray that you will help us to take advantage of this and by filling us with the Spirit right now. Have our lives be changed by your glory, by your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Failure to prepare is to what? Prepare to fail. These are the words of Benjamin Franklin a long time ago and still is true today. If I fail to prepare for a test, certainly I will be prepared to fail that test. If I fail to prepare for playing an instrument, certainly I will fail in playing that instrument. If I fail to prepare for playing a certain sports against another team, I would fail in playing sports against that team. Fail to prepare is to prepare to fail. Now, this applies truthfully in my life today as well as I am raising my children. Raising children require a lot of preparation. Many of you raised children before or are still raising one. You know that to be true. It requires much preparation as you're raising kids, and especially when they're young. It requires much preparation during those times. You know, these kids, my kids, these days, uh, I'm driving my kids somewhere. I remember when they were young, and, and even, uh, even now, there's a lot, or there are a lot of preparations that needed to be made in order for them to go somewhere. You know, I can just throw them into the car and buckle them and go, but the reality is that they need more things than just being in the car with me to go somewhere. I mean, while I was married, uh, before we had kids, my wife and I can just say, well, let's go somewhere. We can just go in the car and go somewhere. But with kids, it's completely different. I have to make sure that they have the stuff they need. If they didn't go to the bathroom before they start leaving, you know, I could be two minutes into the drive and all of a sudden it's like, Dad, I gotta go to the bathroom. I'm gonna have to stop somewhere. I'm gonna have to take them to the bathroom somewhere and who knows I'm gonna get to where I need to get to. And if they're not have enough clothing on them or if they, don't, they feel cold and when they get there, I have to make sure that I have to bring the jackets. If I don't bring the jackets, then they won't be able to go where I want them to go and they didn't have snacks or water in the car and certainly be hungry or thirsty and be complaining the whole time and I, I would just have a miserable trip. So I need to be prepared if I were to take them somewhere. That's the reality of preparation. If I don't be prepared, then certainly I will fail in bringing them to the destination which I want them 
to be at. God, however, is not like me because oftentimes I fail to prepare. I mean, this is a, a lesson learned as a parent. I failed in so many ways in raising my children. Our God, however, is not like me or like us. He's always prepared. In fact, not only is he prepared, he is the one who orchestrates all things. He's in control of all things. Isaiah chapter 46, verse 10, God says concerning himself, saying, He declares the end from the beginning, from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and will accomplish all my purposes. God is in control of all things. He's prepared for all things. He orchestrates all things. Nothing surprises God. God never comes to a point in his career or in his life as God saying, I have failed or this surprised me. Oh, whoops, I didn't anticipate this to happen. That never happens to God. God is determined in all things. He, he determines all things and he knows all things and therefore he's in control of all things, and this includes the fallen man. You see, we sin against God in our own volition. God created us to be perfect. God created us to be holy. God created us to be like him. But in our own volition, in our own will, we walked away from God in the beginning. We sinned against God. God gave us a perfect world, and we said we wanted the world apart from God. We think that we can do our lives better away from God. That's sin. As a result of that, sin entered into the world. Sin entered into our lives, and the world is the way it is because of sin. There's ugliness in our heart attitude. There's ugliness in the way that we treat one another. There's murder, hatred, strife, anger, frustration. There's, that's, that's what's in the world today, and because of sin, that's in the world. However, none of this is apart from the sovereign plan of God. See, God planned, and he knows that all this happened. Even man's sin is part of God's sovereignty. And God is going to use man's sin to demonstrate something about himself that we would not otherwise know, namely his forgiveness. See, you would not know of God's forgiveness unless there's sin in this world. And God's going to show you his sacrifice, his forgiveness, his mercy through the sinful world. And this is exactly what Christ does here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 through 19, or 17 through 29, God himself is going to demonstrate his grace and his mercy through the institution of the Lord's table, which is a demonstration of his sacrifice on the cross. The Lord's table is a symbol of Christ's sacrifice. Jesus came. He gave his perfect life by dying the cross for our sins. God prepared for this. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, it says, As Christ came to the world, and he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you prepared for me. A body was prepared for Christ. He lived out his perfect righteousness. He lived out his perfect requirement, which God required of him. He lived out what we couldn't live out. We couldn't live out. And then he gave his perfect righteousness to you and to me by dying the cross for you and for me. He sacrificed himself. And through this sacrifice, we get to be redeemed back to God. We get to be restored back to God if we believe unto him. His perfect righteousness will be ours if we believe. And by taking the Lord's table, by recognizing the Lord's table, by participating in the Lord's table, we are saying to God, God, we recognize what you've done for us. We believe what you have done for us. And we believe that this is your gift to us. And we will bow down to you, we will live for you, we will submit to you. If you take the Lord's table, if you observe the ordinance of the Lord's table, you're saying that you recognize Christ and you stand with Jesus. So Jesus here in Matthew chapter 26, verse 17 to 29, is instituting the Lord's table, showing all that this is his way of salvation. If you participate in it, you will certainly be saved. You will certainly be his, namely in if you believe unto it and if you participate with it in life. So here we see in verse 17 and 19, there are three actions in Christ, three actions of Jesus as he institutes the Lord's table. Three actions of Jesus. We see first he prepares the Lord's table. He prepares the Lord's table. Verse 17 through 19, let's read this together. 
Verse 17, he says, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go in the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And disciples did as Jesus directed them, and he or they prepared the Passover. So we have this institution of Passover or institution of the Lord's table in the very, begin, in the very beginning of really a, a celebration and they're going to have that night. And this Passover is a picture of Christ's death for us on the cross. Jesus' death on the cross, Jesus' preparation for this death or God's preparation for the death of Christ is something God has been prophesying throughout all Scripture. We see this over and over again in Scripture. Throughout Scripture, we see God gave Adam and Eve an animal. Animal skin, that is. Animal skin had to be there to cover the nakedness of Adam and Eve. So the animal had to die. An animal had to die in order for Adam and Eve's sins to be forgiven. That animal was a sacrifice. That animal was a symbol of Christ. And then later on, you have Abel. Abel offered the blood sacrifice. That blood sacrifice was accepted by God while Cain's Grain offering was not accepted by God, symbolizing that you need to shed blood in order for sins to forgive. And later on, we see in Numbers and Deuteronomy, there was a rock that followed the Egyptian or the Israelite camp. The Israelite camp was crying out to God, God, we need water. And in God's sovereign orchestration, Moses sent struck the rock and water came out of that rock. That rock, as we read in 1 Corinthians, was Christ. He was that rock. That rock was a symbol of Jesus. He would be stricken by God, and life would come out of him. Not only is Christ sacrificed, prophesied in the Old Testament, he was also prophesied in the New Testament. That is his death. We saw this in Luke chapter 2. In Luke chapter 2, Jesus was born. He was placed in a manger. And you think, well, Jesus was placed in a manger, no big deal, because it's just a place to place the baby. Actually, a manger was a place where you were placed to pass over lamb. After lamb had been birthed, after lamb had been born, you'll protect the lamb by swallowing the lamb in a swallow, and then you'll place the lamb in a manger, symbolizing that this is the lamb that will be used for the Passover time. So Jesus was that Passover lamb even in the beginning. Even before he started his ministry, in John chapter 1, verse 29, John the Baptist pointed at Jesus when Jesus was walking down the street and said, this is the lamb of God who is to take away the sins of the world. He would die on the cross. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18 through 19, Jesus prophesied regarding his own death. This is one, only one of the few times. And Jesus says, see, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. Jesus is very specific on how he, on how he will die. Very specific. He's not going to die by a stroke. He's not going to die by a heart attack. He's not going to die by stoning. He's not going to die any kind of death in which there's no shedding of blood. He's going to die by a particular death in which his blood will be shed. He'll be killed in a very bloody way. A death on the cross. And he would die specifically on Passover. He will be a, there will be a certain location. There will be a certain time. There will be a certain mode of death. This all had to happen together for God's prophecy to be true. Now, people have tried to kill Jesus through a variety of ways. Satan has. Satan didn't want Jesus to go to the cross, perhaps. But in Luke chapter 4, verse 29, read about Jesus, Jesus uh, really uh, imminent, imminent danger. It said in Luke chapter 4, verse 20, 29, they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of a hill in which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. I mean, they want to throw Jesus down the cliff and kill Jesus that way. But that wasn't God's mode of death. So what happened? In Luke chapter 4, verse 30, Jesus simply passed through the mist and he went away. They couldn't capture Jesus, couldn't hold on to Jesus. In John chapter 10, verse 31, the same thing happened. The Jews picked up stones again to stone Jesus, wanted to kill him for something that Jesus was teaching. Again, Jesus, in John chapter 10, verse 39, escaped from their hands. They couldn't grab onto Jesus, couldn't hold on to him, couldn't kill him in any other way, even though they sought to kill him in all these variety of ways. Jesus was very specific, saying, I will die on the cross, and I will die during Passover. And this is something that the Jews actually did not want to do. This is something that we saw in Matthew chapter 26, verse 5. The Jews were coming together. The Pharisees and the scribes were coming together. They were deciding, yeah, yes, Jesus needs to die. But they said, not during the feast. 
Not during Passover, that, that there be an uproar among the people. They didn't want to kill Jesus during Passover because Passover is a time of celebration. Passover is a time where people gather together and be, you know, kind of, kind of meeting their relatives and friends after they haven't seen them for a year. It's a time of celebration. It's a horrible time to nail someone to the cross right outside the city gates. Didn't want to do this. But Jesus is the Passover lamb. So this will happen. So right when they did not want to kill Jesus, they will kill Jesus. Before they wanted to kill Jesus, they couldn't. But now they will. But in order for us to understand this, we have to see what Passover is. Because in verse 17, Jesus is going to prepare for his own death. They want to kill Jesus in a variety of ways. But Jesus says, my preparation will go through. Only my preparation matters. In verse 17, he says, now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat? The Passover. Now, the Passover is a time where the Jews are celebrating their deliverance from Egypt. If you know that story, Pharaoh had the Israelites trapped in Egypt. Namely, he enslaved them. After 400 years, he enslaved them. And in that slavery, he really was utilizing them to build his, his kingdom. Did not want to let them go. But God says, it's time for my people to go. Time for my people to enter in the promised land. Pharaoh disobeyed God, said, no, I will not let them go. God exacted plagues after plagues against the Egyptians. Remember that story? Plague one, plague two, plague three. Finally, Pharaoh come to a point in plague number 10. He says, I will not let them go. God says, you know, I'm going to give you one final plague. And this plague is going to change your mind. This particular plague will cause the firstborn of every person in Egypt, every family in Egypt to die. Every firstborn of every family in Egypt will die under this plague unless, unless you have blood on your doorpost. That is for the doorpost of that home. And he instructed, that is God instructed the Israelites to put blood on the doorpost. What they did was they had to kill a lamb. That lamb had to be killed during twilight, right when sun goes down. And they would eat of the lamb. And they would take the blood of the lamb and spread it with hyssop around the doorpost of that home. When the angel of death, when the angel of death passed through Egypt, killing every firstborn in every home, when he saw, when the angel saw a particular home with blood over the doorpost, he would what? Pass over. Pass over that home. And that firstborn of that home will not die. Now, the Egyptians didn't believe in this. Many of the Egyptians didn't believe in this. The Pharaoh didn't believe in this. So the Pharaoh's son died. As a result of that, Pharaoh finally was broken down, crushed by God. He let the Israelites go. And after that, Israelites have been celebrating Passover for 1,500 years until today in the days of Jesus. Every day they celebrated, every year they celebrated Passover in the month of Nisan. 14th of Nisan is which correspond to our calendar, the months of March and April, which is when we celebrate Good Friday and Easter. So they celebrate Passover as a symbol of the remembrance of God's deliverance of them from Egypt. Now in verse 17, it says, on the first day of unleavened bread. So what does leaven have to do with it? It's a very simple. Leaven was to be rid of when they celebrate Passover. Leaven, according to Exodus chapter 12, and in the context of Passover, was a symbol of sin. They need to get rid of sin from their lives. Get rid of leaven. Leaven is yeast. It's an it's a influence of, 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 of something, right? Chemical influence that makes the bread grow. So God says this, for this moment, is a symbol of sin. So I need you to get rid of it right before you celebrate Passover. So these are the days of unleavened bread. Now, on these days of unleavened bread, disciples came to Jesus and said, Where will you have us prepare for Passover? And this is Jesus' answer in verse 18. Go in the city to a certain man and say to him, and teacher says, my, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. Now, this is something that will cause us to think. That is Jesus' response. There are three questions and three answers that we must keep in mind. Three questions that will be raised as a result of what Jesus is saying here. And what Jesus tells the disciples, go to a city and meet a certain man. First question is, how are the disciples going to find a certain man? Right? It says this, to a certain man, in the Greek really says, to so-and-so man. I mean, during this time in Jerusalem, there are about two million people in the city. If you consider the man, maybe a million, maybe a little less than that. But there's still a lot of men in the city. How are you going to walk in the city and just go to a certain man and say, okay, this is the guy we're looking for. How do we know? How do the disciples know? Well, Mark actually gave a little more specificity about this. It says in Mark chapter 
14, verse 13, Jesus said, Go to the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. So this actually makes it a little easier. So this man's going to carry a jar of water. He said, well, that doesn't really make it easier because any man can be carrying a jar of water. Well, actually, not all men were carrying jars of water. Who carries jars of water? Woman. The woman carried jars of water back in those days, culturally speaking. So you're going to have a man. He's kind of stick out a little bit. He's going to carry a jar of water. He's going to see you. You're going to see him. You guys are going to have him. Eye contact, he's going to know who you are, and you're going to know who he is. Follow him, and he's going to be the guy. So we know how this man is going to be found. Second question, why the secretive meeting? Why make it so secretive? Why not just tell the disciples, this is his address. Go to this home, and this is where we're going to celebrate Passover. Why being so secretive? One answer, the answer, Judas. Judas Iscariot. The reason why this had to be kept secret until they entered the home is because in Matthew chapter 26, verse 16, Judas had already sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. He was looking for opportunity. What is the opportunity he's looking for? He's looking for a quiet place, a, a, a place where Jesus is alone, a place where he's not with the crowds, a place where he can just kind of be arrested without anger in the crowds. And the Passover night where Jesus celebrating Passover with the disciples would be the perfect night. So Jesus will be celebrating the disciples, celebrating Passover with the disciples, knock, knock, knock on the door before they even eat. The soldiers are there arresting Jesus, dragging Jesus out of the room. And Jesus arrested. There will be no Passover. There will be no Lord's table. That can't be so. So Jesus is very much aware of the plans of Judas and he, he countered it. By sending only, according to Luke chapter 22, verse 8, only Peter and John to do this. Only two disciples to find this man to prepare for Passover. And when they get there, Judas arrived for the first time. He didn't know he was going to be there. And he didn't know, so therefore he can't get the soldiers to come arrest him. However, Jesus did send him off after Passover, right? After the dinner, after Passover meal, Jesus said to Judas, now he can go. And Judas said, okay, well. Now he's going to do it. But Jesus will have an opportunity to celebrate Passover because of this act of him keeping a secretive meeting between Peter and John and this man. The third question is this. If Jesus celebrates Passover in this time with his disciples, how can Jesus also be the Passover lamb? Right? Have you thought about that? If Jesus celebrates Passover in this time, and dies the next day because the reality is that Jesus celebrates Passover. He goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He's arrested. He was thrown into the mockery trial throughout the morning, thrown in front of Herod and Pilate in the morning, crucified at 9 o'clock in the morning, and, and, and was on the cross for about six hours and dies 3 o'clock. Did he really die during Passover? Passover is just not a vague time period. It's not like, oh, kind of round Passover. Passover is a 24-hour day. So was he the Passover lamb or is he not? Or is he the lamb that was sacrificed after Passover? So how can Jesus be the Passover lamb if he died, if he, if he celebrated Passover with the disciples and died the next day? Answer is this. The Galilean Jews and also the Judean Jews celebrated the Passover a little bit differently in this way. The Galilean Jews started their day in the morning while the Judean Jews started their day in the evening. It's kind of like how we start our day. We start our day during midnight, right? 12 o'clock is our new day. 12 o'clock a.m. is our new day. Well, for the Galilean Jews, they start their day in the morning, and Judean Jews start their day evening. That means that they can actually offer the Passover sacrifice at two different times, according to Jewish law. And that's exactly what it did according to the Mishnah, according to the traditions. So the Galilean Jews would come in the morning and they would actually have, they actually, both of them have to sacrifice their sacrifice during twilight because that's commended by God in Exodus chapter 12. You have to kill the animal, kill, kill the sheep in that two-hour period between 5 or 3 to 5 p.m. during twilight. So in the morning of, they begin their Passover and throughout the, uh, throughout the day in the third state, they would celebrate Pass Passover or they would kill their animal at 3 to, 5 8, 3 to 5 p.m. and eat of their animal that night of. While the Judean Jews would start their Passover that evening and they would let their day go on. And next day, Friday, between 3 to 5, they would kill their animal and eat of the Passover after that. So that's why Jesus is able to celebrate Passover. It's called Monday Thursday. He celebrates the Passover with the disciples Thursday night. It's a valid Passover according to Jewish tradition. And then the next day, 
Jesus was, well, the next, well, the, the morning of, Jesus was arrested, and then he was tried, mockery of a trial, and then he was thrown in front of Pilate. Pilate deemed this man to be crucified. He was nailed on the cross at 9 a.m., was on the cross for six hours, and at 3 p.m., at twilight, what happened? He gave up his life. He said, to God, Father, to you I commit my spirit. He died. The next day, right when the Passover lamb is to be slain. So he died on the 14th day of Nisan, 14th day of Nisan according to the Jewish law. So he was the Passover lamb. Not only was he able to celebrate Passover with the disciples during that Passover time, he's able to institute the Lord's table. He's also able to be the Passover lamb all according to the Jewish law. So this is a lot for us to understand, right? A lot of details, a lot of things going on, a lot of people's plans, a lot of people's um, uh, purposes throughout all this time. But the reality is that God had planned. Jesus had planned for his death to occur. It occurred perfectly according to God's law, occurred perfectly according to God's will. Everything was in place for salvation to occur. It's something that's really, really encouraging to us because there are a lot of things that are happening in this passage. So even if you didn't get that, I'll explain it to you later. It just seems so complicated. But the reality is that there are a lot of things happening in Scripture. A lot of things happening during this time. There's Caiaphas who's trying to kill Jesus. There are, there's Mary who's trying to honor Jesus. There's Judas who's trying to betray Jesus. There are two million people in Jerusalem doing their own thing. And Jesus here is preparing for his own death. No matter what happens... No matter what people's plans are, the reality is this. Only God's plan will come to pass. Only God's plan will come to pass. These days, uh, just a quick illustration, I'm putting together a puzzle, puzzle pieces with my son Matthew. It's a fun thing for us to do. You know what motivates us to put the puzzle pieces together? I mean, there's the, the, when you throw the puzzle pieces onto the ground, it seems like they're all just different pieces, totally uncorrelated with each other. What makes us willing to put the puzzle together? Well, it's because we believe that all the puzzle pieces are there, right? If I tell you, hey, we're not really sure if these are of the same puzzle, or there might be two or three different kind of puzzles in there, you might not be motivated to put it together. Be like, well, I'm going to be wasting my time trying to do this. This is what happens in life. See, God is saying to us, there might be a bunch of uncorrelated events in your life. A bunch of things are happening in your life that seemingly are just not attached to each other. And you might be going through these times in your life saying, well, this person is against me, that person is against me, or I'm trying to do this. And these are just all distractions to my life. But the reality is, is that God is actually using all the aspects of your life to bring to the perfect, bring about his perfect will, his perfect purpose of salvation for you. And this is what happened to Jesus. So you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be concerned that these are just uncorrelated events. If you walk by faith, trust in God, certainly his purposes will come to pass. Jesus is able to make it come to pass. His purposes will occur. No matter what other people are planning, only his preparation will matter in the end. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 21, he says, Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Many are the purpose of other people, but the reality is that the only God's purpose will stand. Psalm chapter 46, verse 1 through 10, it says, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved in the heart of the sea, the waters roll and foam, though the uh, mountains tremble at its swelling. We don't have to be afraid. Though all these things are happening seemingly to resist us, but all these things in the end will only point to what God wants it to go. So the actions of Christ is that he is, in his sovereignty, preparing for his own death. He's preparing for the Lord's table. He's preparing for his own sacrifice. No matter what other people are preparing for, his preparation will be the one that come about. There's two other actions which we see here in the, or in the establishment of the Lord's table. Not only is Jesus preparing for the table, he's going to expel evil at the table. It's going to expel evil at the table. We see this in verse 20 to 25. It says this. 
When it was evening, he reclined the table with the twelve. As they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. The very sorrowful one began to say to him one after the other, Is I, Lord? Is I, Lord? That he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who will betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, you have said so. Now here, Jesus, in this passage, is going to tell him something that's going to surprise the disciples. Namely, what we see here in verse 20 and 21, someone is going to betray him. This is actually after the dinner, after they've ate. Matthew skipped all that. But after the dinner, and this is where the Lord's table is going to come about, before the Lord's table, he says to his disciples, um, says to the disciples in verse 20 and 21, in verse 21, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. He knows. Jesus knows. Now the disciples answered in verse 22. They were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after the other, is it I, Lord? And now if you read this, you're going to ask a particular question. Why this response from the disciples? If Jesus were coming here today and said, one of you will betray me. I mean, would you say like, is it me? Like, because it'd be kind of weird, Right? Because you never really wanted to betray Jesus. So why would you ask that question? Is it I, Lord? Why would all the disciples ask this particular question? As if they think that they're going to be the one. So it actually turns out right before this passage, right before this occurrence, before they had dinner, the disciples were arguing with each other in Luke chapter 22. Remember that story? They're arguing with each other. Who is the greatest? Who is the greatest? And Jesus says, you know who is going to be the greatest? The one who what? The one who serves. And so right before dinner, and they did this before dinner because they have to wash their feet. The reason why you wash your feet is because people reclined before they eat. If you recline as you eat, your feet is going to be what? Next to the head of another person, right? If it's stinky, if it's dirty, it's going to make the other person not want to eat. So they wash their feet before they ate. And the Jesus, and Jesus, what he did was this. He took a basin. He took a towel, he wrapped it around his waist, and began to wash the disciples' feet. He made the disciples feel like they're failures. Oh, Jesus, I've been following for three years. I still don't get it. So they know they sinned against God. They know they were prideful. So at this point, they were very sad about themselves. They were genuinely repentant. And Jesus said, one of you will betray me. And immediately, they inspected themselves and said, is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is that your very healthy self-inspection? Something that we should all go through during the communion table, which we're going to do today. We need to inspect ourselves and say, do, is it I? Do I have, I have the potential to sin? Is it I? Can I be the, would I be the one? Is, is I the one who sinned against you? I need to be careful. I need your strength. I need your help in order to not to sin against you. So disciples are having this genuine reaction to God, humble, repentant reaction to Jesus while there's a false pretense going on. In verse 25, Judas, who will betray him, answered, also, is it I, Rabbi? See, he had to say it. All the disciples are saying, all the disciples are going, is it I, teacher? Is it I, master? Is it I, Lord? And Judas didn't say that. When we look at Judas, say, uh, are you the one? <laughs> you know, like, you're the one, you're awfully quiet at this time. So Judas, in his pretense, he knows that he's the one. He goes to Jesus and says, isn't I, Rabbi? He, pre- he was pretending because he thinks that Jesus doesn't know. Jesus doesn't know that he's going to be betrayed by Judas. He, thinks that, I mean, he literally thinks he's so secretive. He literally thinks that he's got all this under his own control. And, and Jesus didn't know. But Jesus here reaches out to Judas. Look, look at him in verse 23. This is God's gracious outreach. God's gracious call to Judas to repent. See, Jesus, even to the last minute, has loved Judas, right? In the end, when Judas came to Jesus with all the soldiers, Jesus called Judas what? Friend. But Jesus loved Judas, but he knows that Judas is going to do this. So he's reaching out to Judas, saying, Judas, I know what you're going to do. Verse 23 says, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. John actually gave more specificity to this account because John actually asked Jesus, who is it, Lord? And Jesus answered in John chapter 13, verse 26, it is he whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. 
give it to Judas. So Judas knows. Judas in this conversation, he knows that Jesus knows now. He knows that Jesus knows. So he knows that this is not a surprise to God. Stop pretending, Judas. You're not secretive. Your sins are obvious to God. All you need to do is repent. God knows. You don't need to hide from God anymore. That's what Jesus is saying. In fact, another evidence of Jesus' outreach to Judas is seen in verse 25. When, Jesus, when Judas said to Jesus, is it I, Rabbi? Jesus said to him, what? You have said so. He didn't say, I have said so. He said, you have said so. I mean, all this is part of the predetermined plan of God, namely Jude, Jesus is going to be betrayed. But Judas wasn't coerced to, pour, to, to betray. He wasn't forced by God to sin. God never forces anyone to sin. Judas did this because he did this in his own volition. He chose to betray Jesus. So you have said so. You have decided to betray me. And because you have decided to betray me, you could still turn away if you want to, but he is not. Judas is not going to turn away. He's determined to betray Jesus. So in John chapter 13, verse 27, Judas what? He took the bread. He could have said, I don't want the bread. <laughs> right? So, ah, uh, not, not, no, no, no. Don't give me the bread. I'm not going to betray. He could have said, but he took the bread and what? Satan entered into him. He determined that he's going to do it. He's going to betray Jesus. And he did. See, this is an example of walking really close to Jesus and turning away. No human being on earth ever in history has walked as close to Jesus, as close to God as Judas did, and still turned away from him. For that reason, Jesus said in verse 24, Woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed, it would have been better for him if he had not been born. Nobody has done this as Judas did. Judas got so close to God, he literally kissed the door of heaven and went straight to the doors of hell. And if you've done that, for anyone who's done that, the punishment is greater. According to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 29, uh, really the writer of Hebrew is describing to the church uh, that he's writing to, the punishment of those who chose to turn away from Jesus after having been revealed so many truths about God. It says in chapter 10, verse 29 of the book of Hebrews, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who would trample underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which you sanctified an outraged spirit of grace? So you've seen what God's work has been in people's lives. You've seen the church. You've heard the gospel over and over again. You've seen lives changed, and you chose to turn away. How much worse punishment will be for that person? So this is Judas. And the goal for us is to not to be that person. The goal for us is that we will be like the disciples. Disciples who are showing genuine repentance. Is it I, Lord? Can I, can, would I be the one? Is, is it the one that you're pointing to? Would I be, is, is it I the one you're pointing to that I would sin against you? Because I know the sinful nature of my heart. I know my potential. I need your grace and mercy, if that is so, to live in such a way that honors you. That's what communion is all about. It's about self-inspection. Not like Judas who is pretending and just taking it recklessly. You know, godly men in history have always inspected themselves closely. Did you know that? Godly men in history have always inspected themselves closely and recognized the potential to sin. One of the writings of the Puritans in the book, Valley of Vision, he said this, Lord, high and holy, meek and lowly, thou hast brought me to the valley of vision where I live in the depths but see thee in the heights. Hemmed in by the mountains of sin, I behold thy glory. He's saying this. I'm this valley and hemmed in by the mountains of sin all around me. I'm not in sin all the time, but I know my potential to sin. I know that I could be frustrated. I know I could be prone to anger. I know I could be prone to impatience. I know in times of trial, I'm even more prone to these things. I'm hemmed in, it seems like, by the mountains of sin. But I'm looking upward 
and I see what? Your glory. Your glory. And that's what communion is all about. That's what Lord's table is all about. We're not coming to Lord's table and saying, oh, I did pretty well this week. I did really sin. So I could take the Lord's table. It's not your perfection. It's not your sinlessness that makes you worthy of the Lord's table. It's your self-inspection that makes you worthy. Did you know that? 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 20, says, everybody out of what? Inspect themselves and not take the Lord's table lightly, not to take an unworthy manner. If you are to come to the Lord's table thinking that you're doing pretty well, then you are actually taking an unworthy manner. What you and I need to do is to come to God and say, God, I recognize what sins I'm prone to, and I need your strength to live my life for your glory. It's not our strength. It's God's strength. Our hearts are wicked. According to Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart is wicked. We can know it, right? But then in the Lord's table, we're coming to God and say, God, search me and know me. This is actually in Psalm chapter 139, verse 23 to 24. Cry of the psalmist saying, God, even though if I don't know what are my sins are, you know, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and see if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in a way everlasting. I need your help, God. I need your help, Holy Spirit, to help me see the sins of my life, to help me see my potential to sin, to help me see what I will engage in in the weeks to come and how I need your strength to live day by day for you, how I can escape from the ways of the devil and walk in your narrow path. I need God's grace. That's what communion is all about, and that's what really the disciples are exhibiting. Disciples are exhibiting a heart of repentance before God after they've been rebuked by Jesus and saying, God, what else do I need to know? How much more do you have to teach me? I know you have more to teach me. I'm willing to hear. I'm willing to listen. Judas, who's not willing, who's a pretender, was expelled from the table. Those who are not willing to self-examine themselves will also be expelled from the table. The third action of Jesus as he established the table is this. So we first see he prepares the table. He expels evil from the table. And thirdly, he commemorates the table. He commemorates the table. We see this in verse 26 to 29. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink off it, all of you. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And so here we see Jesus actually participate in the Lord's table with the disciples. It's after Judas left. You have evil in your heart. You have sin in your heart. You cannot be a part of the Lord's table. Jesus, stood, Jesus had made sure of that. So after Judas left, they were eating, and Jesus took the bread. And it's very familiar to us because we do this here in our church all the time when we take the Lord's table, and we talk about this all the time. took the bread, he broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said to them, this is my body broken for you. Jesus' body was not physically broken, right? None of his bones will be broken, but this is the only way that he can pass the bread around, only way to demonstrate his death. So he broke the bread, gave the disciples, said, my body is given for you in the same way he took the cup and said, this cup is a covenant of my blood who is shed for you. I did not die any other death other than the shedding of blood. He had to shed his blood like the lamb had to shed its blood in order for the sacrifice to be made valid. Jesus had to shed his blood. He will be crucified onto the cross. His blood will flow down. He will die, and that blood will be the covenant by which many will be saved. Not only so, Jesus said in verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink anew with you in my Father's kingdom. The beauty of this is Jesus wasn't just a legend that died and said, well, you know what? I'm going to die for you. You're going to remember me, and, and I'm going to just not exist anymore, and, and this is going to be the end, but you guys are going to be saved. I'm going to give my life for you. No, Jesus is going to die, and he's going to what? He's going to rise again. Death cannot hold him down. He is God. So he's going to drink of this in heaven with us. Have you thought about this? What it's going to look like when we drink of the communion, eat of the communion in heaven with God, having no potential to sin whatsoever, and look back in the past and say, God, how gracious you are. 
That's going to be a different kind of experience of communion, right? In that kingdom, perhaps all for all eternity, we're going to do this. And I was talking to a particular individual. He was saying to me, you know what? We're not going to remember anything on earth when we're in heaven. It's like, that's interesting. Why do they say so? And he was a Bible teacher. He said, well, it's because, um, because if we remember back to the things what we're doing on earth, then we're going to see all kinds of sins which we have done, and we're going to be sad and mad and, and frustrated at who we are. So that can't occur in heaven. So therefore, we are not going to remember anything on earth. I said, you know what? I don't, I don't really know if that's true. I'm not going to be so dogmatic about it because here, Jesus is going to drink of the communion with us in heaven. If we eat of the communion, you're going to be asking questions, why are we doing this, right? And, and when you ask those questions, you're going to remember back to why Jesus did it. It's because he redeemed you from your sins. So we're going to remember back our lives on earth in a totally different perspective. We're not going to look at our lives on earth as, if, oh, you know, in a self-centered way, oh, I'm such a horrible person. I shouldn't have done this, shouldn't have done that. We're going to look back in heaven on our lives on earth in such a way we're going to remember, we're going to think about God's mercy, God's grace, God's forgiveness. It's all about God. God's love, how can you, oh God, who is as holy as you are, save a wretched sinner as I? How can you, as holy as you are, give your life, as a, give your life to me, a wretched sinner as I? That's the remembrance. And we're going to celebrate with joy. That's something that we need to remember in communion as we take communion later this, this service. So oftentimes we, took a, we take communion, we think of communion, we just play this real solemn music and really, really serious music and, and, and want to make it as, 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 uh, as um, I don't know, quiet as possible. But I just don't think that's going to happen in heaven. I think it's going to be a celebratory time when we are eating communion, right? It's going to be a time of rejoicing. So we need to learn this. How do we rejoice in communion? How do we pray for each other? How do we pray with each other? How do we sing amazing grace at the end, right? We sing that because we're rejoicing. Psalm chapter 51, verse 7 through 8. David said this after sin against Bathsheba. It says, purging with hyssop, I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me what? Hear joy and gladness that the bones that you have broken Rejoice. There need to be a pathway of our emotions as we take communion. Yes, we recognize our sin. Yes, we ask the Lord, is it I? Right? There is a solemnness to it. I'm not saying there isn't. There is a solemnness to, to, to communion. But as you're going through it, you're also reaching a point where at the end of it all, after you confess your sin, after you examine yourself, after you have asked God for help for your day-to-day -day life to live for him, you're coming to this point of joy before God at the end of your communion. That's just what Jesus is saying. Such joy, according to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, you're approaching the throne of God with what? Confidence. Confidence. Because you trust and believe that he has forgiven you. It's actually sin not to trust that God's forgiven you. Do you know that? We need to trust God that he has forgiven us. If you do believe in that, then you will have joy. So we see here the Lord establishes the ordinance of the Lord's table. For those who believe onto it, they take it. As the Lord establishes it, there's three actions of Christ. He prepares it. I mean, he makes it all happen for us. He prepares it, he expels evil from it, and he commemorates it. God's action. So to conclude, I want to share with you this story and actually this illustration. Some said in any organization and and this could be loosely applied to what we're going to do today. In any organization, there's three types of people. One, those who make it happen. Two, those who watch others make it happen. And three, those who are wondering what is happening. Communion can sort of be loosely applied in this way. There are those who make it happen. Now, I'm not saying you can make your salvation happen. But Christ made it happen for us. He died on the cross for our sins. He's inviting us to his banqueting table. He says, you could eat up my body and drink my blood. You could be mine. You could recognize that I'm the Lord of your life. And those of us who embrace that, we're making it happen. This is where we want to be. And there are those who watch others make it happen. Now, that might apply to some of us, and it's not a bad thing. If you don't believe in Jesus, don't take communion because you're going to be drinking judgment unto yourself. So don't do it. You're watching other people make it happen. You recognize that there are 
some things in your life that you still have to get over or you don't really believe in Jesus, so you're working on it. That's fine. That's fine. But the prayer is that you will step in to communion one day, that you confess your sin. If you need prayer, you need other people to lead you in that, just let us know. Let the prayer team know. Let, let, let the pastors here know. Let the deacons here know. Let the worship team up here you know. Anybody you can grab, let, let them know that you need help walking toward Jesus. Let's all be people who make it happen. And thirdly, there are people who wonder what is happening. That's, that's the world. They're watching communion. They're seeing on TV. They're seeing on TV shows. They're seeing movies. Like, what is happening? What is this all about? I pray that today's message kind of gives some clarity to you. But the goal is still the same, that you will be the first type of person, that you will be those who make it happen. You will step into God's banqueting table and embrace the sacrifice of his son. All of us are asking one another of this. According to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20, we are the ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. We're asking the world, we're asking anyone here who's not reconciled to God to be reconciled to God. The banqueting table is available. We can enter in. We can have that supper with Jesus. We can be his eternal kingdom if we choose to. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for this message. We thank you for this privilege to witness the preparation of Jesus for his own death, really a picture of his death, the Lord's table. We know, Lord, that we are undeserving of this. We know, Lord, that you have graciously given to us. All that we can do is to believe, come to you and say, God, thank you. Thank you. We pray that there will be many thank yous here this morning and this afternoon. People who take communion, thanking God for his forgiveness, asking God for grace to live there next week. All of us here, Lord, we need to do that because, Lord, you have given us so much. We pray, Lord, for the Holy Spirit to guide us now individually and corporately as we're about to take communion. Bring to us mind things that we need to be praying about, how we can walk closely to you. This is the most important thing. The most important thing is that we would live our lives with integrity, with joy, with honesty. doesn't mean we're perfect, but means that we're willing to come clean before you. We thank you, Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.